This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, lovely. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Do you remember your sex education? Was it helpful to you? Was it filled with scientific information rather than real, practical advice? I'm Diggory Waite, and this is The Real Sex Education. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest. We'll impart our own sex wisdom, ask our own sex questions, and we'll go over all the things they don't teach you in school. To bring this all together, though, we'll need an expert. A sexpert, if you will. But the only sex and relationship therapist I know is my mum. Hello, mum. Hello, Diggs. In this episode, we speak to fertility counsellor Jill Aldridge about what happens when you're trying for a baby. At school, we're all told not to get pregnant and how easy it is to get pregnant and we'll get pregnant just like that overnight. And then suddenly you realise that actually it's hugely hard. And Ruth Corden about her journey trying to grow her own family. God, to get pregnant, you've got to have a lot of sex. These people that are just like, oh, really? We had sex by accident and we're pregnant. I want to punch them in the face. I'm like, what? Hello and welcome to The Real Sex Education. I'm Diggory Waite and as ever I'm joined by accredited sex and relationship therapist Kate Campbell. Hello mum. Hello Diggs. Each week we welcome a guest onto the show to cover all things sex and relationships but this week is very special. We're joined by not one but two guests. Beaker accredited fertility counsellor Jill Aldridge as well as Ruth Corden from the Finding the Funny podcast. In the first half of this episode we're going to be speaking to Jill about what people can expect when they're trying to get pregnant and how fertility clinics can help. Then we speak to Ruth about her and her partner's journey with the fertility and the effect it has on the different aspects of your life. It's a jam-packed episode today, so let's waste no more time in saying hello to our fertility specialist, Jill Aldridge, and welcoming her onto the show. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Can you explain what it is that you do in your own words? Yeah, I do a variety of things. A lot of it is normal, as you have been talking about in your past podcast, sex and relationship therapy. But two or three days out of my four or five, I focus on fertility work. And so this is working with people going through fertility treatments of any sort. Could be that they just need a few drugs, a small operation. Could be that they need full-on IUI or IVF. Could be that they need donor eggs or donor sperm. They might need surrogacy. And so this is about two different types of counseling, I suppose. One is just therapeutic support because this is tough. And secondly, when they have quite complicated treatments, the HFEA, which is the overarching body for fertility, requires that these individuals are given a space to consider the implications of what they're doing. So we work with those two areas. I didn't know that. So if you're having problems conceiving a child, if you go and seek help, then you're given a counsellor as well to sort of coach you through it? You're offered counselling. Mm. For certain treatments, you have to have counselling, what's highly recommended. And, you know, we have to look at this from the welfare of the couple or the individual having a child, but also from the point of view of the child that's not yet born. So we mm. need to be sitting in various people's shoes. And I suppose from an ethical point of view, 
that's vital that the clinic takes on those different roles. So take us through the sort of average process that you see. If you um, decide you're going to have a baby, you start trying the dreadful word. And then when you've been trying for a while, you think, why is this not happening? So you go to the GP and the GP will probably say, you need to go away and try for at least 18 months, two years before you come back, because no consultant will want to see you. They'll just say, keep trying. It'll probably happen. So off you go. So you've got 24 cycles of trying Mm. failure I don't know that's how people will see it Mm. trying it not working trying it not working imagine what that is doing to you by the end of 24 months your sex life will not be the joyful thing that it was Um, Mm. and and that's just the beginning because then people will come to the clinic they might be given let's say ovulation drugs and sent away for another six months to try or other things and sent away to try. So this goes on and on and on and on. And so you get to the point where sex has to happen and it has to happen when the ovulation stick says do it now. Um, and it has to happen, let's say, every other day through your fertile period. So there is no romance anymore. There's no spontaneity. There's no nothing. And I think it's particularly significant that the dynamic within the relationship often changes because who knows what the dynamic was in that in that relationship at the beginning maybe it was quite equal from an instigation point of view for sex you know maybe it was him it was her you know whatever happened it was fine or maybe it was mostly him who knows once you get to fertility the woman is in that place of responsibility she knows what's happening with her body she's the one doing the ovulation test she's the one that has to come in and say we've got to do it now suddenly the dynamic has changed that may not sit well with her or him she's Mm. then feeling quite responsible she has to make it happen if he pretty understandably is thinking oh god probably the same as her really then she's probably feeling rejected in a way um she's probably feeling a bit desperate because she's got to make it happen this is now her responsibility the last thing she's feeling is any romance and he's probably feeling under a huge amount of pressure and then that obviously can play havoc with your sex life Mm -hmm. so somebody last week came to see me really lovely couple absolutely nothing wrong i think probably a normal unexplained infertility which is so hard but it's been decided there's nothing particularly wrong with them because they've been trying for so long and because the woman is so, so anxious, the man has ended up feeling such pressure that he's got really quite difficult ED. So he's, he's mm. not able to perform. And so he has then gone into huge amount of shame and guilt. And between them, they've just sort of given up and they want to hide under a rock. So you're, you're saying he's got erectile problems. Yeah, yeah, just absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's so common. That's so common. Mm. You know, if you're told to perform now, repeatedly i think probably most people would end up with erectile problems and the fact is that both he and his partner if it's a heterosexual couple will be feeling that pressure it's just a lot more obvious in a man isn't it which is just tough i Mm. think it's hugely hard i seem to see an awful lot of people who just have repeated miscarriages and it takes a really long time before repeated miscarriages are taken seriously not with ivf just they're just having miscarriages and investigated and the the process of having one is really unpleasant to begin with and they're having them repeatedly and they're being told oh well you know just wait you know one one will stick and it it, you, you know they certainly won't be investigated before you've had two or three no it's usually a minimum of three um, and if you imagine mm. that, you know, worst case scenario, that's a 12 week, a 16 week baby. That's 
a huge trauma and it's a huge amount of time as well Mm. when you've decided you want to have a baby and you know you might be two three years down the line having had three fairly significant miscarriages and some IVF cycles in between maybe that haven't worked and you feel as if you're just hitting your head against a brick wall and you feel utterly powerless. Am I right in thinking that it's 10 or 15 percent of pregnancies that end in miscarriage? I don't know I really don't know because it's all different stages but it's huge it's massive and it's under-reported, under-discussed, under-supported. Yeah. It's starting to become more public, but it's massive. And and I think what's starting to be recognised now is that very often those miscarriages are properly traumatic. And, yeah. and, and, of course, if you then go back into sex, another round of IVF, whatever it might be, and you get pregnant again, it's really re-traumatising somebody. You, you're getting triggered really significantly. And I think that that can be very dangerous. And I think we need to spend a lot more time preparing people and making sure that they're ready to go forward. This is the thing. that there It seems like there's just so many obstacles to getting pregnant. And this is just not how they sell it to you at school. Like, it's all about the biology of getting pregnant and then how to avoid that. You're right. And at school, you know, this is my, my one-woman campaign. At school, we're all told not to get pregnant and how easy mm. it is to get pregnant. And we'll get pregnant just, you know, just like that overnight, really. Mm. And then suddenly you realise that actually you're probably going to go to some sort of secondary education, college or apprenticeship or something like that. They're going to be spat out the other end at about 22, 23. They're then going to start working. It's going to take them, I don't know, five years to get their feet under the table. So let's say they're 28, 29. And then they, if they're lucky, they've met somebody that they think might be a life partner. They want to have a bit of a laugh, uh, go traveling, do all the stuff that you do. So then suddenly you're 34. Well, your optimum fertility finishes at 35. Mm-hmm. So so then you're in a panic. So um, nobody tells you at school, yeah, don't get pregnant if you don't want to. But they forget to tell you that you've got quite a small window as a woman. Obviously, you've got a slightly larger one as a man. But as a woman, you've got quite a small window and you need to focus it into your life plans. And it's a bit of an un-PC thing to say. We're probably not allowed even to say it. But it's important, and I think it's important Mm. to consider. Schools, how do you think they should be approaching fertility and infertility? So I think just, you know, presenting people with the facts, they can work it out, Um, helping them to plan, helping them to think through it. Yeah, talk about things like egg freezing, but the realities of it and what it means to do to freeze your eggs, the process you have to go through, the length of time it will take, the amount of money it will cost. I mean, it sounds frightening, but I think people need to be equipped with the facts. Yeah, mm. It's not just becoming pregnant anyway when you're older, is it? It's it's keeping the pregnancy, having a viable pregnancy, having one where the baby has no chromosomal abnormalities or Absolutely. anything. It's, it's a big deal. Huge, it's really... huge, huge deal. And also there's been lots of fascinating research recently from the male point of view because the perceived wisdom was that you know whilst women's eggs were fairly rubbish by the time they were 42 or 43 but men could go on fathering children forever a la Mick Jagger um mm. or you know others <laughs> that you could name actually Charlie Chaplin uh, ex- oh really well there you go so but but actually none of those famous people have helped because they've sort of fostered this idea that it's fine and actually the research is now showing that actually drop-off is pretty similar in men as in women, but it's not really been recognized. Yeah. So I think, you know, this isn't just a female thing. It is both. 
And I think that, you know, a societal view has probably been for a long time, hopefully changing now, that generally when something goes wrong with fertility, it's sort of a woman's fault. You know, if you go back 100 years, it was that was it 100%, wasn't it? Go back 50 mm-hmm. years, probably less. Now, probably significantly less, but there's still that feeling there. And I think that, you know, we have to recognize that it's just not the case. It's just not the case. Mm. And that once it's fed through will then help with the whole self-esteem, understanding, identity, all of that stuff. But we're on that journey. I keep seeing that people are having babies later in life. Is that true? Like, are the numbers going up? Are, are they that big? Huge. And also, you'll have seen in the in the news over the last four or five years, egg freezing has now become a lot more viable. Mm. And there was a lot of controversy, wasn't there, where large organizations were starting to offer egg freezing to their lawyers, their accountants, their whatever. I'm sure for, for all good reasons. But of mm. course, it was then interpreted as don't stop your career now, keep going, keep working. And then you can have a baby later when you're ready. And egg freezing was sort of offered as an easy solution. But it's not. There is no guarantee if you freeze your eggs that that's actually going to produce a baby. There are many, many hurdles between egg freezing and getting a baby. And you probably need to have a number of goes at uh, egg collection. So if you like IVF cycles to collect enough eggs to give you a realistic chance of having a baby. So this is complicated. And you're absolutely right that more and more women are 40 and suddenly thinking, oh, I should have a baby. And in many cases, the time has gone by then, that the window has closed. And that's tragic. It's why donated eggs are that much more possible, that much mm. more um, uh, common now. Gosh, it's not even a pleasant process, is it? I mean, you know, people no. people kind of imagine, oh, well, if, if, if it doesn't work, I'll go and get, I'll have a test tube baby. And it's not that straightforward. <laughs> It's very tough. I mean, somebody going through IVF is IVF is a process where um, when eggs are collected and a sperm sample is made, they put them into a petri dish and they watch to see what fertilizes. And everybody reacts differently. Some people do sail through. Some people really struggle. Uh, and, you know, everybody reacts differently to hormones. So that's, uh, mm. you know, that's just you're either lucky or you're not lucky, I suppose. But you're going through lots of injections. So you're injecting yourself every day for a few weeks. You're coming in to have an egg collection which is not the most pleasant thing. You're Mm. sedated. They're doing quite an invasive operation to collect the eggs direct from the ovary. They're then going to try fertilizing those eggs in a Petri dish. They weren't all fertilized. They then grow the embryos on uh, in the embryology lab and you have to wait and see if they make it. They won't all. And then they'll pick the best one and you come back and they transfer that back into your uterus. And then you wait for two weeks and then you do a pregnancy test. Imagine the psychological trauma of that, the Mm. the strain of it. And then probably it won't work the first time. You've got about a, I think on average, it's something like 25 to 30% chance of producing a, a baby that first time. So you're probably going to be having two or three goes. It's a hell of a lot. And many people are doing it for years. So you think of trying for 18 months, two years, and maybe some of that works, but they end in miscarriage or you try IVF and that doesn't work. And all the while there's this like anticipation, then let down. And, 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 and that uncertainty, living that world of uncertainty and powerlessness, then again impacts on your self-esteem, impacts on your identity. So the impacts are hugely broad. I was watching something in, in preparation for this and it touched on a lot of that, this sort of loss of identity, this particular 
man didn't feel like a man anymore because of the issues that he was having. The options that were available to them, I think the first one they explored was IVF. And the counter argument to that was, you don't have anything done to you as a man. Yeah. Like you, Even though you're the one with the issue, you don't have, but in fact, to fix your problem, I'm putting that in inverted commas, yeah. we're going to do things to someone else, a mm. entire different body, and put them through all the invasive procedures and whatnot to sort out your problem is that ethical it's a huge issue huge issue because obviously you're absolutely right you know most men will say i feel as if i'm just standing on the sidelines and my wife's body is having to go through all of this and and all the Mm. guilt attached to that huge and there isn't a way around it. There just isn't a way around mm. it. So, you know, lots of issues. And, and as you will have read, you know, lots of increasing issues with, with sperm. You know, who knows where that's from? I'm not the medic. Pollution, God knows what. But, but don't forget also that, you know, when you're dealing with two blokes trying to have a baby or two women trying to have a baby, when there's nothing wrong with them or probably nothing wrong with them at all, they also have massive hurdles to go through. And mm. I don't think we should... Forget that because mm. people coming into the clinic, heterosexual couples with problems, yeah, it's really hard for them, really hard for them. But they're there because there is an issue normally. Two blokes or two women are coming in because they have to. There isn't an issue. So, you know, two women, mm. we've got to find them a donor. They've got to come to terms with that. One of them has got to decide they're going to carry. One of them is going to be able to use their genetic material, not the other. Um, so that's mm. really tough. And for men, similar thing. They've got to choose who's going to use their genetic material. They've got to find an egg donor. They've got to find a surrogate. You know, it's it's all really, really difficult. And then they beat themselves up mm. that, you know, why have we had to do this? And whole mixture of guilt and, and rage probably, all justifiable, really hard. Mm. But and I suppose uh, in both cases, in the case of same-sex couples, and in the case of the argument about you know how most of this intrusive stuff happens to the woman, there's no other way around it. Is that why again your role is so much more important? Because we have to accept what is it is, but we can put a support process around it and that's why your job is so important i think so i mean until we're going to grow babies completely in a lab which i'm sure will scarily Mm. happen one day but until we're going to do that we have to face that however clever we are we're actually dealing with nature and this is how it works and i think that you know to some degree this is the problem that you come across with fertility counseling that we've all been brought up to think that if we work harder or we throw more money at a problem we will solve it Mm. and then suddenly very often fertility is the first time that, that people hit this wall because it's that age, isn't it? Suddenly you, you meet the fertility problem and it's probably the first time in your life where working harder or throwing money at it hasn't worked. So you might have gone on every diet, had all the acupuncture, eaten guji beans every Thursday morning, whatever it is, you know, done your yoga, gone to the most expensive clinic, spent £100,000 on IVF, still hasn't worked still hasn't worked you have no mm. power all your power has gone very frightening and that's people who have a hundred thousand pounds to spend i mean the vast majority of course they're not even going to have one step on the ladder no and and uh, and as you as everybody knows you know the nhs funding for all the reasons that we know uh, it reduces year by year by year um, and mm. it's still a postcode lottery yeah wow. gosh 
Because I, I, I was wondering, a lot of the, the speakers on this come from the US, and when they spoke about how much it cost, I thought, oh, well, that's, you know, private healthcare over there, that, that's standard. But I was wondering whether the NHS over here would front the bill for it, because it's not essential, I suppose. It's not absolutely necessary. So that isn't the case. The NHS doesn't... IVF, all these other treatments are all have to be paid for by the people who want the baby. The, the NHS will fund some, um, but it's not countrywide. Right. Um, and, you know, that's a very, quite a very interesting question you bring up, you know, who, but do people have a right to have a child? You know, that's just a, that's, exactly. a, that's another mm -hmm. whole series of programs, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. but if you accept that there is a right to have a child, which I suppose the NHS has sort of followed because they are funding in most areas, they will pay within very strict guidelines. Um, if there is a good reason and they have to be, they're very strict criteria. If there is a good reason that somebody needs an intervention and it needs to be IVF and if they meet criteria, age criteria, they must be older than this and younger than that. And it's quite a small window. They need to have a BMI of no more than this. They can't smoke, but all the, they have to meet all these criteria. Um, then generally, one round will be funded now. So uh, so one round of IVF generally. When I first started in fertility practice, I had three postcodes around me and one funded three cycles, one funded two and one funded one. And now they all fund one. Um, and that's about wow. seven or eight thousand pounds worth that's being Gosh. funded. And, and you would say... On average, three cycles might most, work. M most statistics tend to be based on three cycles. Now, they might say, I don't know, you've got a 70 or whatever percent chance if you have three cycles, but it's a very tough journey. There is no guarantee at all about IVF. I think people think it's, a, it's the solution and it's not necessarily. One would naturally see that and think, everyone should have at least three yeah. paid for by the NHS. And I but think that's where it started. I think, honestly, to start with, the NHS was sort of following that logic. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just too much money. And such a large percentage of the population need help. And so because the criteria have become so constricted, I suppose, you know, there is a, a proportion of my work that is about supporting people to hit their BMI or supporting people to stop smoking, because that's all part of the fertility journey. And then imagine if you're not only the woman who might have, I don't know, polycystic ovaries or something like that, so has some other issue and needs some support, but also is overweight, so needs to lose weight to be able to qualify for fertility support. This is a woman who is loading guilt onto herself and is also trying to motivate herself to lose weight. Oh, it's just multiple layers of nightmare. But how how do people go about that? Like, what advice do you give in the clinic? I think it's just the 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 simple thing of if you are wanting to have a baby, talk about it early. Keep talking about it. Um, talk about how it's going to impact your sex life. Talk about the responsibility you feel. Um, how you feel it affects your identity, how important it is to you. Don't pretend, don't hide it. And make sure you make space to discuss it um, because otherwise it becomes a, a bit toxic. So I think just the communication of it, don't hide it. I think it's a little mm. bit on PC sometimes to 
talk about, you know, A, sex, which I'm sure you've been discussing all the time, but, but B, children and how much you might want them. Mm. So don't leave it too late. If you, if you have a friend going through fertility treatment or trying to have a baby, what should you say to them and what should you not say to them? That's so useful, isn't it? Because I think every day somebody will say to me, my friends are lovely or my family is lovely, but they've never been through it. So they're not going to understand, are they? So they say mm. the wrong thing. And it significantly upsets people, doesn't it? So mm. I, do you know what? I think, I think as the person going through it, I think you probably have a responsibility, although you shouldn't have to when you're going through so much stuff. But I think you probably have a responsibility of telling people what you want them to say and what you don't want them to say. So you might choose to say, do you know what? You're my best mate. I really want you to know what I'm doing. I really want your support. But the rule has to be, if I don't bring it up, we're not talking about it. For instance, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you can prepare your own scripts as well, can't you? You know, so so when that, you know, auntie says, have we had children yet? You know, <laughs> instead of it just going through you like a dose of salts, you know, you've got your script and it might be, we would really love to have children, but it hasn't worked yet. And if you've practiced that enough times, you can say that and it gives you some power. So I think things like that are really mm. important. Oh, thank you. Fantastic. Well, Jill. Thank you so, so, so much again. This has been brilliant. No, nice to see you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you again to Jill Aldridge for taking the time to speak to us about the work she does. It was super fascinating stuff. Right, we've had the fertility therapist. Now it's time to speak to someone on the other side. Welcome to the show, fellow podcast presenter, Ruth Corden. How are you doing so, Ruth? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very, very well. Thank you so much for asking. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Thanks for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Today we've been talking about fertility with a fertility counsellor and we thought it would be great to get your perspective on things as someone on the other side of it so yeah so can you tell us a bit about your time with your partner Matthew over the last yeah. eight years and, and and where you're at now and I suppose from your intro what what don't you get taught at school about sex education I would say infertility on the curriculum mm-hmm. is non-existent Absolutely. you know you're told god don't have sex because the moment you have sex you will create a baby so I think for years, you know, everybody has this mantra, don't they? You, Lots of people spend their 20s desperately not trying to get pregnant and their 30s desperately trying to get pregnant. And that, I suppose, has been 
the story for me. So Matthew and I, Matthew's my husband. We met 10 years ago. Um, we got married in 2012 and we decided that we wanted to try and grow our family straight away. So I use the language of growing our family because I feel like couples out there who don't have kids are always told they haven't started their family yet. And I'm quite passionate about saying like Matthew and I are, are a family regardless of whether we ever have children. So we tried to grow our family and it and it wasn't happening. So I went to the doctors and I said, look, some of my cycles are 90 days long. My periods are all over the place. I was 30. So, you know, I hoped they'd take me seriously. I got the age old thing that you always get at the doctors when you're overweight, go away and lose weight, reduce your BMI and it'll be fine. And so I tried, I did. And for five years, it was like a minefield of us trying to figure out exactly what was going on, get to the bottom of it, and nothing was happening. And then I stumbled across a GP who just said, we're going to get to the bottom of this for you. And at 35, I was diagnosed with something called polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it basically means that I have follicles on my ovaries, but I also have hormone imbalances. So it means that my periods are very heavy, very long. My cycles are very long. I don't regularly ovulate, so obviously getting pregnant becomes more difficult. So we then got referred to a fertility specialist on the NHS and we kind of put all of our eggs in that basket, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> and we were like, this is it. Like, we're going to go in there and they're going to help us and we're, you know, we're going to be able to grow our family. And the appointment was awful. I was told I was too old and too fat in one foul swoop. And I was 35 by this point, so I wasn't even particularly old. And I left that appointment, that was in 2018, and actually what followed was really dark. And in terms of our sex life, you know, the moment you have sex when you're trying for a baby, your mind is instantly like, we're pregnant, that's it. Like, you know, they tell you, don't you, at school, if you have sex, you make a baby. We've had sex, we're going to be pregnant. And PMS symptoms and pregnancy symptoms are like twins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so throw into the fact that I have polycystic ovarian syndrome and then I later also found out endometriosis. Throw those two things into the mix. You haven't had a period you start Googling symptoms, you're like, well, this is the date we had sex. Of course, that means we're pregnant. And then you do a pregnancy test and it's like, oh no, just tricking you. You're not really pregnant. Mm. <laughs> and that's sort of been the kind of dance we were doing for a really long time. And then in 2019, we bought our first house and I just said to Matthew, I've got to stop. Like we've got to, like my mental health just completely deteriorated. It was awful. It was dark. It was bleak. And we decided to kind of take a break from trying. And that for us, which is quite unusual in the kind of infertility community, meant using protection when, when we had sex because I had to put a stake in the ground. I had to claim us back a little bit and I had to say the old is gone, like that hasn't worked. And all the time that we were having sex without protection, there was this constant like, you could be pregnant. <laughs> so that was the end of 2019. And we're in a space now where... We're living childless, which isn't what either of us would have chosen. There's other options, of course there are. But I think I've experienced so much grief and loss within these last eight years of like trying to grow our family that I feel quite frightened about either pursuing treatment because I feel like I'm getting a sense of myself back probably for the first time in a really long time. And I suppose... We're just, just doing one day at a time, talking about stuff, thinking about other options. 
yeah that's it that's our story in a nutshell mm. so while you were while you were trying what what did that do mm. to your sex life i mean is it is and when everything's focused on on dates and and outcomes yeah. rather than just chilling together it's awful it's it becomes like a military operation to mm. the point where you're like we have to have sex and we have to have it right now. Like if this has got any chance of working and, you know, that becomes then me peeing on sticks to see if I'm ovulating, you know, that is a mood killer. Hang on, hang on. Let me check I'm ovulating. Mm. You know, let's not, let's not waste anything. If there's nothing going to happen, like let's stop, let me check, you know, so everything just becomes completely militant. And there has been so many times where, Matthew and I desperately trying to have sex it just hasn't happened because we've been so disconnected it's been so clinical it's been so like you know no enjoyment no fun no not even any like do either of us really want to have sex right now and that's such a massive part of sex isn't it that like desire and that sex drive is such a massive part of having sex that when it comes down to actually I'm really not in the mood I'm absolutely knackered from a week at work. The last thing I want to do is this. But actually, God, if we miss this window and then the kind of grief that comes, I think, after sex becomes quite pointless, I think, because with infertility, you're just on this massive grieving cycle of like, I haven't lost anything, but I'm in the throes of grief, what feels like all the time. So you have a lot of sex. And also, God, to get pregnant, you've got to have a lot of sex. These people that are just like, oh, really? we had sex by accident and we're pregnant. I want to punch him in the face. Like, I love what? the idea of having sex by accident. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think a number of politicians have said that. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, is, that is true. I think it only happens to them. It's weird. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but those people that were like, oh, yeah, we just had sex on the perfect day and the, on the, you know, in the right cycle at the right point and mm. we're pregnant, you know. So I think it's also what comes after. So you have sex, you wait your period comes, you feel this like the bottom fall out of your world, you feel deeply sad, deeply shameful, deeply lonely. And then you actually think, well, there's no point, is there? So sex then becomes like, because it's not doing the thing that you want it to do and that you're desperately longing for it to do, it just becomes pointless and you just start to think, well, it doesn't work for us. So so you sort of have to work harder to find that intimacy. And that's why when we when I said in 2019 I need to take a break from trying, that included using protection because mm. like we had to find ourselves in the mix of that again. And I think lots of people who have been trying to conceive for a really long time find that quite bizarre. But for me it had to become about me and Matthew again, not about this is the this is the means to an end that gives us a baby. Yeah, it's so gosh. But it sounds like you've done it. it. Sounds like you're the best of buds still. Yeah, and I, you know, look, uh, Matthew and I are really different, and I think that's the other thing. You know, that there, there is such a grief with this, which Matthew and I grieve in really different re- ways. That was a really big thing that we had to master and figure out, and I am externally processing, and he is internally processing, and. Even that within your sex life is difficult because I needed to talk about the fact that it hadn't given us what we needed. And Matthew was like, I can't really go there. So I think the the impact on couples around this is totally misunderstood. And they, they say like infertility ends in divorce mm. is such a big reason as to why marriages and relationships don't work. And I get it because 
how do you manage all of that complexity and still keep intimacy and is about you and the other person and mm. not just about god please let the sperm meet this egg and let it work who did you turn to then if you if you needed to talk about it yeah for i, I would say for a really long time i didn't turn to anybody and i would go around saying oh, i don't know i really want kids I, you know i work with kids every day i work with young people I, you know i'm not really sure i want kids mm. it's not for me and then i would like hear pregnancy announcements and you know sob on my own and be like god why isn't this happening for us you go through a period you know where every one of your friends is either the settling down and getting married or and then every one of your friends is having babies and then I just got to the stage where I was like actually I can't keep this in anymore and I actually weirdly I sent <laughs> it sounds quite odd but I sent an email to my family to say because I sort of had to get it down on paper but I didn't want to have individual conversations and I wasn't going to call like a family meeting to talk about our sex life and fertility but it felt like the best way to say look guys just a heads up you know I've been saying I don't want kids Actually, it's because we've been trying for three years and or four years or however long we had been trying at that point and nothing's happened. And I think most of my family went, oh, yeah, that makes sense, because I don't think they quite bought mm. Ruth doesn't want to have kids or be a mum. But that's such an amazing concept, isn't it, that you have to come out about your fertility. And it was a big coming out for you, really big and, and yeah. it's not it's not a concept most people consider is it how do you share that with people it's so hard I, I mean I think we're still in society aren't we like when are you getting married or are you know those three questions are you married do you have a job have you got kids mm. all three of them now I'm going through a divorce I lost my job last week and I haven't been able to have a baby like they all are such emotive personal loaded questions that for some reason we still think in society we've got the right to ask mm. like tell me about your family is a much better question than do you have kids mm. absolutely we've got to change our language haven't we like people would say to me before i started talking about it, people would say to me matthew will make a fantastic dad don't don't wait around you know don't mm. leave it too much longer and you're sat there thinking God, we've been mm. trying for five years. Mm. Like, you don't have a clue. You have got a clue. Uh, like, what mm. is going on in somebody's life? So just don't comment on it. Like, and inside, internally, I'm going, yeah, and I'm the reason he's not a dad. <laughs> so thanks very much for that. Like, I'll never forget our fertility appointment. The only time the consultant addressed Matthew, I mean, he didn't even look at him, was when he turned to him and said, well, you're clearly not the, the problem. You've got excellent sperm. And I was just like... Okay. And then he just made a throwaway comment of like, I mean, you could be a sperm donor if you wanted to. And it's like all that stuff that is like, do you understand? I haven't dragged Matthew here kicking and screaming. We are in this together. We both want to grow our family. We are both in this. So if I am infertile, Mm. he is also by proxy infertile because guess what, dude, we're in this together. And we're, you know, we have signed up to saying we want to be parents together and it's not happening. But it's all of that, like, assumptions, throwaway comments, you know, why haven't you made him a dad? Like, Mm. all of that stuff that just makes couples and often women feel incredibly isolated and incredibly lonely. And I would say the thing, the biggest thing for me is the loneliness and the isolation that, that I felt mm. in the very deepest, darkest depths of when things were really tough. But just that ongoing shame related to my body can't do what it's supposed to. Mm. Like, why can't my body just do what 
most other women's bodies do do why is it mine that can't and I think that is also such a misunderstood feeling and the impact it has on us is really huge actually something you said really really struck me it was really nice you said you'd found yourself again what helped you to do that it was humor in the traumatic stuff that I've experienced on loads of different levels, but around infertility and sex in terms of not being able to grow our family, finding the funny is such a important integral part of that because I had to get my humour back. I lost it all. I became a shadow of myself. It was like I couldn't even look at a pregnant woman without bursting into tears. I couldn't think about having sex without feeling deeply sad that it probably wasn't going to result in having a baby. And I got to the stage where I was like, this isn't who I am and this isn't who I've been raised to be. You know, we have in our family, (laughs) through some dark times, gallows humour, like that's our thing, I think. So I suppose the more you talk about it, the easier it becomes for sure. So you mentioned finding the funny there and you don't just mean finding the funny in general aspects of life, but the podcast, Finding the Funny, that you do with your sister Ange. How did that come about? Yeah, so we, Andrew and I uh, decided that we, when lockdown started, we found ourselves just sort of like FaceTiming five, six, seven times a day, like nobody had anything else to do right. And we'd just crack each other up and we talk about really stupid stuff. And we started to think, oh, I wonder if anyone would find these conversations funny. So we did a couple of like Zoom, like girls night ins. We put it on our social (laughs) media and we kind of did 50 people and they you know people were up for it people came it's sort of gone from there really and here we are nearly a year on still got listeners somehow (laughs) (laughs) and really enjoying just yeah just trying to find the funny in wherever we can really that's the whole purpose of our podcast and what about sex do you guys ever talk about that and try and find the find the funny in that Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've had a few episodes. So one of the questions we had from a, from a listener a couple of weeks ago was, I get really annoyed when my husband, when we finished having sex and my husband just rolls over and just like looks at his phone. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I would be annoyed like that. And was straight in. She was like, no, that's it. I'm like that. I pick up my phone. <laughs> I start looking at it. <laughs> so we had this really interesting. And Ange basically just kept saying, I think I am a bit blokey like that. Like once, once it's done, it's over. It's done. It's finished. I don't need to be talking to you. I don't need to have anything more to do with you. Wow. And I suppose that's why Ange and I work really because she's quite cynical i'm like a puppy and like oh my gosh people 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 and she's like rolling her eyes going oh no you know i'm done with this so yeah that that we 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 talk about anything there's sort of no holes barred really for us we're happy to tackle and talk about anything yeah great way to end (laughs) ruth thank you so so much for coming on it's been it's been so so great thank you so much it's been brilliant Thank you so much again to Ruth Corden for being so open and honest and speaking to us. You can find her on Instagram at Ruth underscore Corden and just search Finding the Funny wherever you get your podcast to hear Ruth and her sister Ange find the funny in all aspects of life. And if you listen to episode 19, you may hear the familiar voice of your favourite accredited sex and relationship therapist. You'll find links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you again to Jill Aldridge for speaking to us today. Mum, thank you for being my favourite accredited sex and relationship therapist. Thanks, Diggs. Thanks for being so great. (laughs) And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week for some more real sex education. Bye. Bye. 
You've been listening to The Real Sex Education, which is hosted by Diggory Waite and Kate Campbell. The show is produced by Diggory Waite, and the executive producer is Claire Broughton. The Real Sex Education is a hat-trick podcast. This podcast is based on the real-life relationship between Diggory Waite and his mother, accredited sex therapist Kate Campbell. The show is therefore inspired by, but otherwise unrelated to, the TV show Sex Education. But yes, Diggory does wish his mother was played by Gillian Anderson. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.